We've had some problems the last couple of weeks, or with my preaching at least, with the microphone. I don't know what's happening, but they say there was no trouble last week. Uh, and um, I'm, I think there's probably those out here, out there, um, the creepy child molester types that troll your church page that probably wondered why I wasn't preaching last week. They probably think, oh, he's trying to be quiet. He's got to be quiet. No, it's not that at all. I was so thankful for that message last week. I was thankful for a little bit of a break. Uh, I'm not in a position of leadership here, and I consider it a great honor when I'm asked to preach. But I appreciated that message last week, and I was glad for a little bit of a break. And no, I'm not going away. No, I'm not going to be silent. I'm a preacher, and preachers preach, and that's what preachers do, whether they've got false unjust charges against them in a court somewhere or whether everything's going just dandy. Preachers preach. And that's the problem here in America today is preachers have quit preaching. And that's why evil, whether it be in Memphis, Tennessee, or in Madison County, Montana, flourishes because preachers don't preach. But we're going to preach this morning. I'm going to preach this morning. We're going to let the Lord take it where He wants to go. Turn to Revelation chapter 22. This Lord's Day, we're going to be in verse 19. Two weeks ago, I don't know if you guys remember this, but two weeks ago was January 14th, 2023. January 13th, 2013, 10 years and a day earlier, was the first message that I was privileged to preach on this, in this exegetical study on the book of Revelation. Introduction to Revelation part 1. January 13th, 2013. It's been 10 years. My, how much has changed. I find it interesting to go listen back to some of those studies before a lot of, this, uh, a lot of these things have transpired in our history that seem to telescope and seem to be speeding along breakneck. And it's amazing how God's Word transcends that. And the very things we've experienced in these last 10 years, we talked about coming. We warned about coming. And that's what God's Word does. It's prophecy, forth-telling, forth-telling that includes foretelling from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. And therefore, woe unto those who would add something to it or those who would take something from it. And so we see that warning right here in the last chapter of the Bible. Here in Revelation 22, we've talked about the last exhortation of the Bible, verses 6 through 15. We've talked about the last invitation of the Bible, 22 verses 16 and 17. That invitation has the same word that appears in the first invitation uh, of the Bible, freely. We've talked, and now we're talking about the Bible's last warning. The very last warning of the scriptures. There's many warnings in the scriptures. Because God is a God of just, justness or justice, righteousness, and mercy. A merciful God never dispenses judgment without warning. The false gods, the demigods, the fallen angels, the devils that the Greeks called gods would just dispense judgment on people for no reason in their mythologies. But not the God of the Bible. He gives warning, and He gives warning here about tampering with His Word. There are those out there that tamper with witnesses. Wicked cops in Madison County, Montana, tampered with a witness when they harassed my son and lied to him. And that's bad. That's terrible. 
And many people are angry about that. And yet, do we get angry when men tamper with God's word? Tampering with God's word is tampering with the Holy Spirit. And he's the ultimate witness. You don't tamper with that witness and it go unpunished. So we looked at verse 18. This last warning in the Bible has two parts. Verse 18, don't add to God's word. Warning, don't add to it. Verse 19, don't take away from it. Don't subtract from it. Warning, don't subtract from God's word. Now when we talked about adding to God's word, I want you to imagine that this pulpit here is what we call the table of authority. It's what has the authority, the ultimate authority. And God's word rests on this table of authority. It's the only thing that belongs there. If I were to take something, and I were to take, say I was to take my notes on this message, and I were to put it up here on this table of authority, as if it has a place beside God's word in terms of authority, then I have added to God's word. If you take your traditions as the Catholic Church does, or papal decrees, and you put it on the same level of authority as the Bible, you've added to God's Word. If you take your feelings, what many professing Christians do today to justify destroying their families, to justify all sorts of sin because they felt a certain way. If you do that, then you have added to God's Word, and God says He will add to you the plagues written in this book. If you, add, if you take your theological constructs and you put them right here as if they are the authority of God's Word, as if God's Word is to be filtered through your theological construct, then you've added to God's Word. When I talk about missions a lot of times, and I like to share this like when I go speak at the camp, the boys' camp in the summer, that the problem with a lot of American missions is we take culture. We take culture as if it's a funnel, and we pour God's Word through the funnel of culture. That's adding to God's Word. When God's Word is the funnel, and everything else needs to be filtered through it. God's Word transcends culture. So when people go around and teach, well, women pastors and homosexuals and all, you know, homosexuality being sin and all this, that was just cultural. That's the way it was in the day of, of Rome, but nowadays it's different. You're adding to God's Word when you do that. You're lifting American wicked-as-hell culture, and you're putting it besides God's Word, making excuses of it, and God's going to add to you the plagues written in that book. It's a serious evil to add to God's Word. There are traditions. There are theological constructs. There are sermon notes. There are feelings that are good and useful but we dare not put them on par with God's Word. We better judge them by God's Word. We better filter them through God's Word. Don't add to God's Word. But now we're in verse 19. We're going to look at the opposite side of that. And really, it's almost when you add to God's Word, you're also taking away from it. When you take away from it, you're also adding to it. So it actually is something one, does, one demands the other by default. And it's grievous. Verse 19... Here, part B of the last warning of the Bible. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy. The book of this prophecy. The book of Revelation. But the Bible itself is prophecy. 
and a book of prophecy. So specifically, the book of Revelation, but by default, the entire Bible. If you believe that the Holy Spirit is the one who moved men of old to speak by Him, if you believe the Holy Spirit is the one who orchestrated the gathering together over the years of the canon of Scripture and its preservation, then by default, you have to believe that this refers not just to this book, but to the whole Bible. Warning. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part. Doesn't say his name, his part, out of the book of life, out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Revelation, and by default, the entire Bible. That's a pretty serious warning. Just as serious as the verse that preceded. It's one warning. In fact, I wanted to look at two verses real quick that are actually adding to and subtracting from God's word at the same time as these verses appear in some of your modern English Bibles. And I want you to think about this table of authority because there's something else that doesn't belong on that table of authority according to the Bible that you'd be surprised. Turn to Psalm 138, verse 2. And I want to thank Matthew for bringing a couple of these verses to my attention after last, two weeks ago after that message. Psalm 138, verse 2. The psalmist writes, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. Pay attention. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. My friends, God doesn't even put his name on the same level as his word. God's name isn't even on the table of authority beside his word. He has magnified his word even above his name. Now I want you to consider that in light of what... The law says about God's name. Exodus 20 verse 7, the Ten Commandments, you know what it says. Do you know the Ten Commandments appear in Exodus 20, but they also show up again in another chapter? Anybody know? Deuteronomy chapter 5. The Ten Commandments are there twice in the Scriptures. But turn to Deuteronomy 5.11. We're, we're used to the Exodus passage, but let's, so let's do something different. Deuteronomy 5.11. I want you to think about what God says about His Word in Psalm 138 being above His name as we consider what God says about His name. Deuteronomy 5.11. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. There's a lot of taking God's name in vain in our culture today. It just pours out of people's mouths. We've even got abbreviations for it. That everybody knows what it means when you text it. And then there are those that claim the name of Christ that think, well, that's okay as long as you abbreviate it. No, no, no. God will not hold him guiltless at take his name in vain. To speak God's name is vain is to take his name in vain. To claim to be something in terms of your relationship with God and to use God's name to define yourself and then go out and ignore His Word, that takes His name in vain too. 
but God won't hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. How much more so for those that take his word in vain because he's lifted his word above his name. Leviticus 24.16 is a scary passage to read. When I, when I think about those wicked cops in Madison County, Montana who just pour forth the name of God as if it's a curse word and refer to my 12-year-old son as a GD kid and then I read a verse like this, it's scary. Number one, God's last name's not damn. Okay? It's not His last name. His last name's Almighty. Leviticus 24, 16 says, this is the law given to Israel. That Deuteronomy 4 says is to be an example to the nations. A light to the nations of good government. So we should never apologize for anything in, in the law of God in terms of governing and restraining evil and promoting righteousness. Leviticus 24, 16, And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord... When you give God the last name of damn, you blaspheme His name. He that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him. As well the stranger as he that is born in the land. Same law for the resident and for the immigrant. No different. When he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall he shall be he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord shall be put to death. Now that's pretty serious. And I'm not going to make an apology for God's law. I'm not going to make an excuse for it. But if that is the standard to which God considers his name, and if God lifts his name, I mean lifts his word even above his name as it's written here in Psalm 138, it's a serious thing to add or to take away from God's Word. Now, they just can't help it in these modern Bibles. They can't help messing with Scriptures, and they can't help messing with this one. I'll give you an example. This is a textbook example of both adding to and taking away from God's Word. The English Standard Version in this verse, the ESV, um, does not say that God has magnified His Word above His name. It says, you have exalted above all things your name and your Word. Wow. They've added God's name beside His Word, and they've taken away the fact that God's magnified His Word above His name. That's messed up. That's messed up. Turn to Hosea chapter 11 verse 12. Hosea is an interesting book. Um, it was written around the time that Israel had hit rock bottom and God was bringing about her judgment. 722 B.C. the Assyrians would sack Samaria and carry away captive the people of the northern kingdom. Judah had not yet hit rock bottom. In fact, there was still a godly remnant. There were still kings in the time of Hosea that did right, some better than others. And, and Hosea's prophecy went down through the days of Hezekiah, who was one of the most righteous kings in the history of the southern kingdom. And so that was the period here. 
And we learn something interesting from the very first verse of the first chapter of Hosea that applies to what we're living in now. If you read Hosea chapter 1 verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Uzziah was righteous by and large. He took matters into his own hands once when he went into the temple to offer up incense in the place of the Levitical priest, which he shouldn't have done, and God gave him leprosy. But he was, by and large, a righteous king. Jotham was righteous. Ahaz was not. But Ahaz is the king to whom Isaiah was sent to give the prophecy of the virgin birth. Hezekiah was righteous and brought revival and destroyed idols and turned the nation back to God. So Hosea prophesied during this period, during these kings in Judah and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. That last phrase is interesting because when you put the chronologies of the kings of those two kingdoms together... If Hosea prophesied from Uzziah to Hezekiah, then he also prophesied during the days of other kings in Israel that are not mentioned here. The only one that is mentioned is the first, Jeroboam the second. Okay? God had made a promise to Jehu when he overthrew the house of Ahab in Israel that he would have a son under the fourth generation to sit upon that throne in Israel. They were ordained of God. Jeroboam, the second son, Zechariah, wasn't there very long. He was that fourth one. And he was, there was just a bunch of craziness. And there was an interregnum there when there was no king. And it was anarchy. And there was assassinations. But following uh, Jeroboam, you had Zechariah. You had Shalom. You had Menahem. You had Pekahiah, Pekah, and Hosea. All up until the Assyrians carried them away captive. But why doesn't God mention them? Because God does not recognize usurpers. God does not acknowledge fake kings that had no business being on that throne because they stole an election or they assassinated the rightful king. God doesn't recognize usurpers. And we have the proof of it right here in Hosea 1 verse 1. That's why on the authority of God's word, we can be those who don't recognize usurpers. And the one that calls himself a president that can't put two sentences together that's being guided as a marionette on strings by puppet masters is an usurper. We aren't obligated to acknowledge him. God doesn't. I would say that the current Congress, even though there might be a Republican majority, as if that means anything anymore, it's illegitimate. It's illegitimate. Numerous seats are there because of stolen elections and I'm not an election denier, friends. I just don't trust a system in a country that has a broken moral compass. That's why we are foolish and naive if the, if the country's moral compass is broken and it can't even point in the right direction anymore. Why, don't, why do we think naively that that wouldn't reflect itself in all avenues of life? Do we say the moral compass of the country is broken? And yet say that I always back the blue. How can that be? Can we say that the moral compass of the nation is broken and yet you can always trust what a doctor or a nurse has to say? How can it be? 
If the moral compass is broken, then it's broken in all of these avenues and we better be judging things by God's Word and not naively assuming that you can trust a police officer, trust a, trust a, a nurse or a doctor, even trust a preacher. That's why we better not be adding or taking away from God's Word or we'll lose our ability to discern truth. But God doesn't recognize usurpers. My point here is, at this place in history, the northern kingdom had hit rock bottom to the point that God didn't even recognize her kings. Judah had not hit rock bottom. There was still a work going on in Judah. Turn over to 11 verse 12. I'm just saying that to set this up. Another classic example of where modern English Bibles both add to and take away from God's Word at the same time. Verse, chapter 11, verse 12. Ephraim, which is another nomenclature for the northern kingdom, compasseth me about with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Israel, the northern kingdom, had hit rock bottom. God had given her over. And there was nothing but anarchy, assassination, kings left and right. But Judah yet ruleth with God and is faithful with the saints. Remember, Hosea prophesied during the time of... There was, still, there was great evil in Judah, but there were still righteous leaders. There was still one of the greatest of all that was to come and was to be delivered from the Assyrians, and was to purge the land of the idols, Judah has not hit rock bottom. She yet remained faithful. The lesson there is that there can be great evil in a land, just like we have today, but a small remnant that speaks up for truth, even one man in power who will destroy idols, can do a great deal of cleansing a land and maintaining its right relationship with God. But, so we're told here that Judah is yet faithful and, and there would be great revival. The last king of Judah, legitimate, before Babylon stepped in and started messing with it, was righteous, Josiah. God still had a work there. <clears throat> now, if you go to some English versions, you're going to find that this verse says the exact opposite the New American Standard Version of the Bible says the diametric opposite of the King James text here. It says Judah is unruly with God, even against the Holy One of Israel. Now, I've got to hand it to the ESV translators. The ESV is a remarketed NASB. So they had to remarket and they had to change some stuff to make it enough different they could get a copyright. And sometimes these Bible translators will do that by changing the text back to the correct rendering so they can get enough changes in. So the ESV has departed from its predecessor here and it's correct. It says Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. But the predecessor of that Bible didn't. It said the exact opposite. To demean God's saints and to accuse them of wickedness when they are actually engaged in righteousness is a crime. It's a crime to justify the wicked and to condemn the just. And that's what happens here when you flip what God's Word says. You add sin to Judah that wasn't there and you take away righteousness that wasn't there. Adding and subtracting from God's Word. 
I don't think these things are innocent. Just like the first half of this warning, verse 18, don't add to God's Word. The second half of this warning, don't take it away from God's Word. It also appears at the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Bible. God's warning not to add to His Word can be found in the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Bible. And don't take away from God's Word can be found in the beginning, the middle, and the end. Turn to Deuteronomy 4. We'll go back to the beginning. The book of the law. The law of Moses. Deuteronomy 4 verse 2. We read last weekend the first part of that verse. You shall not add unto the word which I command you. Beginning of the Bible, that warning. That we find in verse 18 of Revelation 22. Now we're going to find that same warning in verse 19. Neither shall ye diminish aught from it. Don't take away from God's word. Right there in the beginning of the Bible. It's not a new warning. That ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Do not diminish aught. Aught implies anything. Even what you consider is small. Jesus defines aught as a jot and a tittle. A jot is the Hebrew word, the Hebrew letter yod. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Tittle is a mark. It's a punctuation mark that indicates a proper reading of the text. Jesus said that even the jots and the tittles were important. Proverbs 35, we looked at that this week, or last or two weeks ago. Right smack dab in the middle of the Bible, we're warned about these things. Remember verse 6: Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Right smack dab in the middle of the Bible. Do not add to God's word. But if we back up a verse, we're going to see that in essence, Solomon is also warning us against taking away from God's word. Verse 5, every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. If every word of God is pure, then God is warning us not to take away from it. So right here, smack dab in the middle of the Bible, we're being warned about taking away from God's word. Because God is declaring that every word is pure. And then of course here at the end of the Bible. Revelation 22, 19. We have the same warning. Do not take away from the things written in this book. I mean. Do you consider that a coincidence? When the Holy Spirit brings together the books of the Bible. The very first book in the history of the world ever printed on a printing press was the Holy Bible. In this order. Do you think that's an accident that that warning would appear in the beginning, the middle, and the end? Should we not take it seriously? When we are warned in this verse not to do what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. We're warned against it. Genesis chapter 3 verse 4, Satan diminished aught from God's Word. We know that Eve added to God's Word. Satan took away from it, or the serpent. We learn that that serpent in the Garden of Eden is that old devil. We learn his identity in the book of Revelation. That's where you first learn that the serpent was the devil. Revelation 12. It's funny how the beginning and the end come together. 
Genesis chapter 3 verse 4. Eve tells the serpent, well, we're not supposed to eat it, neither shall we touch it. God didn't say anything about touching it, lest ye die. Then Satan comes in, the serpent, verse 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. In other words, God said you die. Satan says, no, you won't. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Satan added to God's word. I mean, Satan took away from God's word. God said, you shall die. But what he really meant, a better translation would read, if you eat it, you'll be like him. We're warned not to do what the serpent did. It's very serious and it brings very serious consequences. What are the consequences? Verse 19 If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part. Now that word part there in the original language means allotment or a share. Think of a share, like a stock share. Or a portion or an inheritance. Something that's been delegated or given to you as a portion, you're going to lose part of it. I think about the uh, parable that Jesus told concerning the talents. The one who took ten talents and gained another ten talents. Then there was one who took five and gained another five. Then there was one who was afraid, so he took the single talent and buried it in the earth. And what happened when the master came back? He lost his part. He lost his portion, and that portion went to the one that had the ten talents. If you are adopted into the body of Christ and His inheritance, those that are born again are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, you will lose rewards and you will lose from your allotment in Christ's kingdom if you take away from God's Word. God is saying, you take away from my Word. This is especially for those that teach it. For those that teach it. I'll take away from your share. I'm going to take away from your portion. Now it doesn't say I will take your name out of the book of life. It says I'll take away from your part, your inheritance. You want to lose your inheritance in Christ's kingdom? If you've been appointed a position of authority or a, or a mansion in God's house, you want to have some of that taken away? Well, then don't take away from God's word. Take away from my word, says the Lord. I'll take away from your share, your portion, out of the book of life. Do you remember what Christ Jesus said to the church at Sardis in Revelation 3 verse 5? He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. He's talking to the remnant. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Who is he that overcometh? 1 John 5, 5, written by the same John the Apostle's revelation. He that overcometh is he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. So God's saying those that believe, that overcome, will not have their name blotted out. You can't have your name blotted out of the book of life, but you can have your part taken away 
if you take away from God's word. It's interesting, the, uh, some of the references to the book of life that we see in Revelation, we've talked about all these. Revelation uh, 13 verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, the beast, the antichrist, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If you're born again, your name is in the book of the life and, it, and you overcome by, by believing that Jesus is the Son of God, your name won't be blotted out. Those who worship the beast don't even have their name in that book. Chapter 20, verses 12 through 15, more recently in our study, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to his works or their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I think this warning in chapter 22, verse 19, is to the wicked. It's certainly to the wicked. But it's also, and probably more importantly, to those who are the church. Remember, Revelation is to be delivered to the churches. Your name may be in the book of life, and you don't, and it will never be blotted out, but you've got a portion and an inheritance that is connected to the book of life. Rewards. And if you take away from God's word, he's going to take away from that inheritance. Do you want to stand before the throne one day and have nothing to put at his feet? Some people say, well, I'll be content living in a little old shack in a corner of glory to justify their sin and they're taking away from God's word. Not me. If Jesus says in my father's house there are many mansions, I want to live in a mansion. And God forbid that my foolishness in taking away from God's word would rob that inheritance or that authority. It says he will also have his part taken out of the holy city. And that speaks directly to that inheritance. I don't want that. Remember what Jesus said in John 14? John 14, verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus has gone to prepare an inheritance for us in the holy city of the new Jerusalem. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you. Remember that word paralambano in Greek we talked about? Receiving. The bridegroom comes to receive the bride. The rapture of the church. Receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. Christ went to prepare a home for us, a mansion for us. An inheritance. God forbid that taking away from God's word would cause us to lose part of that inheritance. If he's prepared for me a mansion with a hundred rooms, God forbid I'd have to give up a few of those because I've taken away from God's word. Not just a part in the book of life and the holy city. Actually, before we go to that, turn to Revelation 13 verse 6. That word mansion there in John 14, a derivative of that word appears here in Revelation 13 verse 6. 
speaking of Antichrist, the beast, and he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. So at the time Antichrist is alive and well blaspheming God, he's also blaspheming a group of people that are dwelling at that moment in heaven. That word translated dwell in verb form is a derivative of the word translated mansion in noun form in John 14. So Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. He comes again and receives you. And then you're in that place dwelling at the time Antichrist is making blasphemy. And he's not just blaspheming God. He's blaspheming those that have been taken out of the world and now are dwelling in heaven in those mansions prepared. I don't know about you, but when the man of sin is down here blaspheming God and blaspheming us that have been taken to the holy city, that have been taken to our inheritance to await Christ's second coming, I don't want to be out of what had been appointed to me I want him to be angry as hell at us because he's wicked as hell. And so let's don't take away from God's word so that we have our inheritance diminished. I want to dwell in heaven in the very mansions that Christ has gone to prepare for us. So we as believers ought to take this warning seriously. The book of life, the holy city, and verse the third part, God will take away our part from the things which are written in this book. I take that to mean not just Revelation. There's not a whole lot of blessings written in Revelation. There are some in the letters to the seven churches. Do we want to take away, have taken away from us those blessings that are promised to those who overcome? The white stone, the new name, the white raiment, all of those things promised to those who overcome. But the whole book of the Bible, the promises, the comforts, the blessings, not just in this life, but in the life of co- to come. Do we want to have our part of that taken away because we take away from God's word? When I consider this phrase, the things which are written in this book, I'm reminded of what Paul the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He is quoting a passage from Isaiah 64 verse 4 in verse 9, but as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. God has prepared things for us that love him. But, verse 10, this is where the Apostle sheds light on the passage in Isaiah. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. You see, until the Holy Spirit came and indwelled the church, there were things that I had not seen and ear had not heard and couldn't even be considered. Now they can be considered because they've been revealed to us by His Spirit. And we see types of those future promises and blessings in our own lives today that give us hope. Do we want to be robbed of that because we've robbed God's word? God forbid. God forbid. Taking away from God's word affects our future inheritance and it'll affect our present pilgrimage. When we should be able to find comfort, when we should be at peace, we will find despair of our own making. Romans 15 verse 4, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 and Romans 15 verse 4 are good verses because they reveal to us the purpose of the, whole, of the Old Testament and why it should have authority in our lives. Those things were written 
aforetime, number one, to warn us. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. But Paul says they were, they were also written, for whatsoever things were written aforetime, the Old Testament, were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So in other words, through the Scriptures, we can have patience, comfort, and hope. Guys, if we take away from God's Word, God will take away our part from the patience, the comfort, and the hope. And what might be or should be an easy burden to bear, because Jesus' yoke is easy and His burden light, we won't find it. We'll carry a heavy burden. We don't have to because we've taken from God's Word. And that's where we can get in trouble in times of tribulation when we give in to our mind and the darts of the evil one and we don't find what God has said. What more can He say to us than He has already said as was in that hymn this morning? But beware. Don't take away from God's Word or you will have your share, your portion diminished. Not just in from out of the book of life, but the holy city and the things written in this book. I don't want to be robbed of those things. Israel robbed itself. The generation that perished in the wilderness robbed itself of their inheritance by complaining at Kadesh Barnea when the spies returned. She robbed herself and she lost her part. Now God sustained that generation in the wilderness until it all died away but they never entered the land. Moses robbed himself. Moses was a great prophet of God, the meekest man on earth, has a purpose. God has a purpose and a plan for him that's yet to be fulfilled. We've studied that. But Moses missed out on his part in the land of Canaan because he took away from God's Word. He didn't speak to the rock as he was supposed to. He took away. He did not speak to the rock. He pounded it. His part was diminished. Now, that didn't mean he was condemned to hell. That doesn't mean God doesn't have a plan and purpose. Moses stood there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah. God wasn't done with him. But he missed out on something. We don't want to be like that. Beware the modern English versions of the Bible when it comes to subtracting or taking away from God's Word. These are things many folks don't know about. There are many things in this life that we've been fed or spoon-fed, and we haven't had to look into it because we've been comfortable and at ease, that we've been deceived. And some of us are afraid to ask questions. They call that cognitive, cognitive dissonance. dissonance. Proverbs says, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it is shame and folly. Be careful what we just throw away out here. I'd say... We ought to listen to everything that's going on and we judge truth by God's Word. Is it possible that groups like Antifa and Black Lives Matter, no doubt the leaders there are wicked, no doubt they use people as pawns, no doubt they have an evil agenda, but is it possible that some of the beef of those that march with these is legitimate? When I watch what happened in Memphis, I say yes. Wicked what they did to that poor young man. Those cops. You know, when people talk about it being a racial issue, they diminish from the sin of it. It's not a racial issue. It's bigger than that. 
It's a spiritual problem. It's a wicked as hell from the pit of hell, spirit of antichrist, spirit of the age, spiritual problem. Don't diminish its evil by just calling it racial. But we need to be willing to hear a matter. But we've been deceived about a lot of things and things that we consider innocent or not. And modern English Bible versions take away from God's Word. I'm not going to go into little any to much of that because there's just so many rabbit holes we could go down. I'm not going to do it. But in most modern English Bible versions, 14 entire verses are missing from the New Testament. They're missing. And they don't even change the numbers. So when you read it, you see it's missing because the number skips. They take the, ver- the verse out, but they ain't got the guts to redo the numbers. Matthew 7, 21, gone. Matthew 18, 11, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Gone. Matthew 23, 14, gone. Now, it doesn't mean that this is the case in every modern English Bible, but you'll find it missing in most of them. Mark 7, 16, scratch it off. Gone. Mark 9, 42 and verse 46, gone. Where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Jesus emphasizes the seriousness of hell three times in a row. But they scratch two of them and only make him say it once. Mark eleven twenty six 26, gone. Mark 15, 28, gone. Luke 17, 36, gone. John 5, 4, gone. Acts 8, 37, out of here. Now, Acts 8, 37 is a pretty important verse. There's a lot of false teaching out there about the purpose of baptism. Baby baptism. The Bible teaches believers baptism. In Acts 8.37, they got to scratch that one because it's pretty clear. Philip and the eunuch. Verse 36, they went on their way. They came to a certain water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Why can't I be baptized? He asked Philip. This is what Philip said. And Philip says, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. If you believe, you can be baptized. Baptism is for believers. And he, the eunuch, answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What John says is, He that overcometh. Believer's baptism. Plain, simple, clear, case closed. So what do they do? Cut it out. It's not there. Acts 28, 29 is gone. And I consider it significant, especially in terms of our ministry and our love for sharing the Messiah with the Jewish people. Paul is in his own house in Rome and the Jews come to hear him. And he lays out all these things. And then we learn that he's able to preach the kingdom of God and teach the things concerning Christ with all confidence during that whole two years without any man stopping him. It's a great open door of God. But Acts 28, 29, Paul says very boldly to this group of Jews that have come to hear him in verse 28, Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles and that they will hear it. And then we're told the response of those Jews. Verse 29, And when he had said these words... The Jews departed. Cursing? Blaspheming? No. And had great reasoning among themselves. That verse right there tells me 
that God is not done with the Jew. That those Jews had sat there and they had heard the things that Paul had preached with boldness. The same things that made those Pharisees and Sadducees stark, raven, mad as hell back in Jerusalem. But these Jews had great reasoning among themselves. I've had people tell me that I'm wasting my time sharing Christ with Jewish people. Because they're blind. And they cannot see. And they won't see until their eyes are open. And their eyes are not open now, so you're wasting your time. This verse tells me otherwise. Mm -hmm. So what do the Bible versions do? They cast it out. Make no mistake. The spirit of Antichrist hates the church and he hates the Jew. He hates the Jew and he hates the church. He blasphemes the church when she's raptured out and then he goes after the Jew and tries to eradicate her from the face of, him from the face of the earth and he goes after the remnant of her seed. Revelation 12 and 13. So when this nation turns from a blue tyranny to a red tyranny, you can mark my words, when the red tyranny comes that denies God, they won't just go after Christians, they'll go after Jews. And anti-Semitism is on the rise in this country. Not from evil folks at the top that are working with Antichrist. Satan uses Jews and Gentiles for his purposes. But anti-Semitism is on the rise in this country with average Jewish people. And persecution of the church is on the rise. It's going hand in hand. But there is a purpose and a value to declaring Jesus Christ the Messiah to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And here's the proof. These people departed having great reasoning among themselves. Cut it out. That's not insignificant to me. The very last verse of Romans is missing. The end of the book, the blessing at the end of the book that's appended to every other one of Paul's epistles. Why do they cut it off at the end of Romans? makes no sense. 1 John 5, 7, and 8 is probably the most egregious what's been done here, and it's very subtle, very subtle. Here we have a very clear statement of the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinity, the triune God that's denied by man-made religion. Verse 7, this is right after John defines the overcomers. Who is he that overcometh the world? Verse 5, but he that believeth Jesus is the Son of God. Then verse 7, for there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, the witness of God, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, is greater. So there's two witnesses here. The witness of men and the witness of God. We get the witness of God in verse 7. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, these three are one. We get the witness of men in verse 8. In earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, these three agree in one. But look what these modern Bibles do. For there are three that bear record. Everything from in heaven to in earth is cut out. So in other words, and I won't quote it exactly, but a Bible like the ESV says there are three that bear witness. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. So the heavenly witness is removed. It's cut out. 
And then verse 9 makes no sense because John talks about two witnesses, but you only have one. And then the, 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 the gender and the verbs and stuff don't even agree with each other in the original language. It's preposterous. But you can't have that. That's a clear statement of who God is, three in one. Cut out. That is not innocent. That verse has been referred to as the Johannine comma. I actually wrote an extensive essay on that verse uh, when I was in seminary. If you go to our website, fpgm.org, and you look under teaching KJV defense, you will see that essay, and these three are one. You might find that interesting. It's written in seminary language, and so you might be confused, but it's, it's a decent read. Also, if you want to go to fpgm.org forward slash sampling, S-A-M-P-L-I-N-G, I've got a whole list of verses book by book in the New Testament that have been tampered with in modern versions. And you'll be shocked. Some of them add, some of them take away. So you can find that. Now, when we consider taking away from God's Word, let me just... Let's use the NIV alone. The NIV was very popular for a long time. It's not as popular anymore. The NIV alone has 64,098 fewer words than the King James Bible that God blessed for 400 years, the Bible of the Great Awakenings and the Revivals. 64,098 fewer words. That means 10% of the Bible is taken away in the NIV. Is that harmless? Not according to that warning here. That's scary. You know, there was a lesbian pastor involved with the NIV translation. There was a, a, a homosexual affirming pastor involved. But that's the least of their troubles. They took away from God's Word. Look up Luke 4 verse 4. Here is a classic example. Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness by the devil. The devil tries to say, you know, you're hungry, Jesus. Turn them stones into bread. It's easy for you. Luke 4, 4. And Jesus answered him saying, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Go look up that verse in the ESV, the New American Standard, the NIV. The last phrase of that verse is gone. Those Bibles say man shall not live by bread alone, period. But by every word of God is gone. They don't even try to hide it. Now, you know, people would come along and say, well, the absence of these verses, these absence of these phrases, they don't seriously affect any fundamental doctrine. All of these truths can still be found in the modern Bibles. It's not in Luke 4.4, but you can go to Matthew 4.4 and find that phrase. So, but by every word of God is in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4 of these same modern Bibles. But they took it out in Luke 4, 4. So it's like, well, it's not a big deal. You can find it somewhere else in the Scriptures. It's not a big deal. Blah, blah, blah. Not a big deal. Now, what if I were to say to you, okay, here in this community, we have a whole bunch of stop signs and a whole bunch of stoplights, Right? Would you say it was no big deal if we went out and took down a stop sign at a dangerous, busy intersection in this community 
Would you say that's no big deal? Because there's all kinds of stop signs in that community. So it's no big deal. We wouldn't say such a thing. I remember over in Montana, uh, after we got out of jail from our unjust and wicked as hell arrest that I hope every one of those officers is held accountable for. They're all in big trouble with God because they blasphemed his name and they said awful things about a child who believes in Jesus. Jesus, did you know that Jesus said there are certain people? Jesus said this. I didn't say it. Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild Jesus said that there are some people that would be better off if they'd never been born. That's what Jesus said. Jesus also said that there are some people who are better dead and drowned in the sea than being alive. And those who curse and harm little ones who believe in Jesus are better off dead according to Jesus. That's serious. I didn't say that. I wouldn't even wish that on someone. But Jesus said it. So those wicked men are in big trouble. But in Montana, we were back in Bozeman. This kind widow opened her home to us. And we had a place to stay as we kind of figure out what to do after we got out of jail. The weather was real icy and cold. We went out one night. Eric and I had to go get the vehicle that had been taken and put in a, uh, um, a, um, a impound yard there in Virginia City. And by God's great grace, he watched over that vehicle we were able to get it, and we had to drive over the mountains back to Bozeman. It was a little icy and treacherous. But coming into Bozeman, I was going down a street that went out in the direction of the neighborhood, and there were lots of side streets. And as we were proceeding down this street, a car came from a side street. Didn't even slow down. I'm coming down the main road and just entered out into the intersection. And I was inches the day after getting out of jail from having a collision. And I was able to slam on the brakes, and this guy went off in the ditch. No stop sign. There was no stop signs on those side streets. And I'm like, what in the world is this? And I was told that they removed those stop signs on some of those side streets, and people are just supposed to slow down and pay attention. I mean, they do crazy things in Montana. I don't know. You know, there's not a grand jury in Montana. That's wicked as hell. That's a constitutional violation. They want to make secret hearings in Montana when the Constitution guarantees a man a public trial. But they don't even have stop signs on side streets and people are driving through not even slowing down. Even the Nepalis in the third world know to slow down at an intersection. But is that insignificant? No, it almost caused a terrible accident. So to say, well, it's okay to cut that out of Luke 4.4 because we can find it in Matthew 4.4. So you take out one stop sign just because there's another one somewhere else. That logic is foolishness. What if, what if all a man has is the gospel of Luke in his language? What good is Matthew 4.4 4 going to do when he ain't got Luke 4.4? 4? Who are we to say it's okay to take something out of God's Word if that truth is found somewhere else? And I would disagree with the notion that biblical doctrine is not affected by these modern versions. I would wholeheartedly disagree. In fact... If you go to my website, some of the things I've written under training, kjvdefensefpgm.org, I list 41 biblical doctrines that I believed are removed, weakened, changed, or added by these changes in modern versions, particularly in the New Testament. Did you know that these subtle changes have completely erased 
the teaching of the virgin birth from the New Testament epistles. Not from the Gospels. Not from the Old Testament. But it's out of the epistles. You won't find it. Galatians 4.4 In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son made of a woman. Made of a woman. It's a different word than born. Someone that's made of a woman is not born of a woman. That's the virgin birth. But the modern Bibles say born of a woman. It's not even the Greek word that's used. Virgin birth, effectively gone. What about Hebrews 2.16 has been messed with? Hebrews 2.16. We learn of Jesus, the Son of God. For verily He took not on Him the nature of angels, but He took on Him the seed of Abraham. Jesus took on Him the seed of Abraham. The ESV says He helps the offspring of Abraham. There's the virgin birth removed in the epistles. I don't think that's insignificant. Remember Hebrews 1.3 we talked about last week? Adding to God's Word, taken away. That Jesus self by Himself purged our sins. Sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus by Himself is removed. And that's nowhere else stated in Scripture. That He by by Himself purged our sins. When you take it out, it's nowhere else stated in Scripture. That, That affects doctrine. We're told in 1 Timothy 4.12, us preachers, preachers listen up. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers. Be an example in your word, in your conversation, which means your conduct, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Six things that we're to be an example of as teachers of the word. Modern Bibles remove spirit and only say five things. So be an example In speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. Where's spirit? They take it out. We're to be an example in our spirit. That means our spirit is to match what our words say. Our spirit is to match what our conduct, our faith in a purity, not lip service. When you take spirit out of what we're to be an example of, you're in essence saying... Do all these things, but all of these things can be just lip service. I'm reminded of 2 Timothy 3, also written to Timothy, speaks in verses 5 through 7 of those that have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Those who are an example in their words and their conduct but not in their spirit have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof because the power is in the spirit. Are we to believe that? This isn't affecting doctrine, these changes. Of course it is. Those police officers in Memphis that murdered that young man, they were a terrible example in their conduct and in their spirit. Mark my words, the same spirit that was in those murderers with a badge was in those officers that arrested us in Madison County. They were restrained from acting upon it, but it was in their black hearts. And they would have if they could have. The Spirit is where these things 
give birth. And it's important for us as teachers of the word to be an example in our spirit. And our spirits are what bear witness with others that we are children of God. So I think I've made the point here today that God takes it very seriously. His word has been magnified even above his name. We should not add to it by putting other things on the same plane of authority as his word. We should not diminish aught from it by taking away from God's word like a lot of these modern Bibles have done. Get you a King James Bible. You can trust it because it has the testimony. It has the, it has the legacy. It has the fruit of God's use. All of these modern Bibles do not have that fruit. We have poured these Bibles into the marketplace in this country and look where we are spiritually. Don't add to God's Word. Don't take away the last warning of the Bible. Well, if we, if we shouldn't add and we shouldn't take away, what should we do with God's Word? What should we do with God's Word? Turn to Isaiah 66 and I'm going to wrap it up. Isaiah 66. Don't add to God's word. Don't take away from it. That's a grievous error. That's an egregious crime against God that brings serious consequence. But you know what we can do with God's word? And we should do something that very few in America today do. God says, I'll just uh, read verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. That's a mouthful right there that we gloss over. It's a mouthful. We're not a random accident spinning around on a random rock in a random galaxy in a random... The earth is God's footstool and heaven is His throne. God rules over this creation. He's not distant and unknowable like the God of the Quran. He's intimately involved with His creation and He rules and His eyes go to and fro throughout the whole earth. We've forgotten that. Or we act in our country as if it's not true. But the heaven is God's throne, the earth is His footstool. Where is the house that you will build unto me and where is the place of my rest? How can you even build me a house? For all those things have my hand made and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look. God's saying, this is the one I look to, not the one that builds me a temple. Even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit... Spirit's important. Don't be cutting that out there in, second, in, in Timothy. And trembleth at my word. God looks to those that tremble at his word. The ones that would be afraid to add or to take away from it. The ones that wouldn't be afraid to say, I don't understand it. The ones that aren't afraid to look at God's word and say, I don't know what it means, but I believe it. Those that tremble. I tremble when I think of those that blaspheme the name of God and derided a little child that believes in Jesus in the same sentence. That one officer out there in Madison County said, take the GD kid to CPS. He blasphemed God's name and he derided a little child that believes in Jesus. I tremble before God's word when I think about that. We can tremble before God's Word. God loves that. And He looks to those that tremble. What else can we do? Let's jump back over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
I know I'm preaching hard this morning, and I know and I'm happy I'm preaching to the choir. It's good to preach to the choir. You guys understand these things. You've been raised right. You've been taught right. The Word of God's been preached here. So I can come in here and say these things, and I'm not going to get tomatoes and stones thrown at me. I'm not going to be called a blankety-blank evangelist or any of that in here. It's a refuge. Now on the street, you go out here and preach these things. You'll have people that go to church every Sunday cuss you out. Some folks watching this today, maybe even transcribing my words, just flipping mad cussing. They're going to stay up all night. All of this good. Good. Not afraid of you. The psalmist said, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have gathered themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my, oh my God. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly in their mouths. 2 Timothy 2.15 Don't add, don't take away, but we can tremble. What else should we do? Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We can study God's word. And then we won't be ashamed. We can tremble before it, study it, and then we'll know how to rightly divide it and discern good from evil. That's what we can do. Tremble before it, study it. And the last thing, Hebrews 5. What else we can do? Now I'm just going to tell you plain. I'm going to tell you plain. You can tremble before it, you can study it. And for God's sake, get off the tit, get off the bottle, stop sucking on the milk, and start chewing on some meat. That's what you can do. Get off that tit. Get off that bottle. Stop sucking on the milk, content with your ignorance, content with your simplicity and your knowledge of the Bible, and start chewing on some meat. That's what we can do. Chew on the meat. Now, a baby can't eat a T-bone steak. He's got to drink the milk. But if you're not a babe in Christ and you've been around the block, get off that milk and start getting you some T-bone, some filet mignon out of the Scriptures. The things that are hard to understand and seek understanding, that's what you can do. I don't mean to be blunt. Sometimes you've got to be blunt. Paul said that he came not speaking glowing words, that he was rude of speech. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. These were people that should have known better, but their ears were dull. They'd been sucking on the milk instead of looking in the meat. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, you should be teaching these things. You ought to know better. Ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Get in the meat if you want to be able to discern good from evil. In days where good is called evil and evil is called good and truth is fallen in the streets. Don't be dull of hearing. Don't be unskillful in the word. We get the meat of the word when we use the word. When we tremble before it, when we study it, we become 
more rooted in it. Or we're able to digest its meat. So those are things we can do. For all, it's a terrible thing to add to God's Word and to take away from it. And for fear of those things, we shouldn't just close this book and put it on a shelf. We just need to see what God has to say. Tremble before it. Study it. And chew on that meat. And then God will give us a mind of wisdom and a mouth of wisdom. When an entire nation has messed with God's mind, or messed with God's word, He has messed with its collective mind. And the country's fallen apart. But if we will do the opposite, tremble, study, and chew, then our minds will remain sound. And people can flee to us for the answers and find truth in days when truth is being trampled upon in the streets. So there we have it, guys, the last warning of the Bible. It's a serious warning. We still have the last promise of the Bible. We still have one last prayer in the Bible. We still have one last blessing in the Bible. Praise God. And we still have one very last amen in the Bible. So I look forward to finishing up these things and closing out this wonderful study that God has been so gracious to guide us through for all these years. Through, We're into our third American president now that, uh, that was there when we started this. So it's kind of crazy. Lots of ha- a lot has happened. But uh, I don't know where you guys will go from here. I hear rum- rumors that you're going to get in the book of Hebrews. I think that's great. I think it's a great follow-up. I've had people say they want to get into the minor prophets, so I'm excited. But let's finish this on a strong note. And uh, thank you, and I pray you've been blessed. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're so grateful for your word today. Lord, we pause. And Lord, we tremble as we consider this last warning in your book, the Bible, the last warning in Revelation. Father, forgive us if we have ever ignorantly added to your word or taken away from it. Be merciful to us, Lord. May we never do so presumptuously. Forgive us if we have. Help us to tremble before your word, to study it, to chew on that meat, Lord, and to get understanding and to cling to these Bibles, something the world makes fun of. Help us to cling to them tighter as the day approaches for your return, that we not have our part diminished in our coming inheritance. Thank you, Jesus, that you've gone to prepare a place for us. And that you will come again and receive us to yourself. Please may that be today, Lord. Help us to occupy until you come. Bless the food we're about to eat. And I pray, Father, that um, our fellowship would be a sweet savor to you. We lift up those who were prayed for again at the beginning of the service. And uh, we just honor you and praise you, Lord. Unto you who is able to keep us from falling and to preserve us faultless for the presence of your glory, O oh Lord. To the only God, wise God, our Savior, be praise, majesty, glory, honor, power, and dominion. Amen.